seven. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, I am starting the webinar. Okay. Welcome to his. Welcome to historical happy hour. I am Jane's devoted husband and terrible tech support manager. Sorry for the delay in getting today's episode with Christine Hannah. Welcome, Christine. Welcome, Jane Healy. Um, so excited to have you both here. Sorry for the delay getting everything started. We had a little bit of audio problem, but now everything resolved. I see hundreds of people joining. And with that, I will turn it over to my beloved host of Historical Happy Hour and best-selling author, Jane Healy. Thank you, Chaz. See you Bye, later. Charlie. <laughs> Oh, welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry for the technical delays. And so sorry to everyone who was sending me emails. <laughs> Badly right now. No, no pressure, Jane. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on. Um, I feel like you need no introduction, but I'm going to give you one anyway, and then dive right into questions. Um, so Kristen Hanna is the award-winning and best-selling author of more than 20 novels, including the international blockbuster, The Nightingale, which was named Goodreads Best Historical Fiction Novel for 2015 and won the coveted People's Choice Award for Best Fiction. It was a Reese Witherspoon book club pick in 2023 and named a Best Book of the Year by Amazon, iTunes, BuzzFeed, and The Wall Street Journal. In 2018, The Great Alone became an instant New York Times number one bestseller and was named the best historical fiction novel of the year by Goodreads. The Women came out on February 6th and, it, and is also a number one New York Times bestseller. Congratulations and welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. You know, I can't miss a historical happy hour. You know, <laughs> That's right. How can I walk away? I'm definitely going to be having a glass of wine after this. <laughs> I am. <laughs> got my champagne right here, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> Um, so to dive right in, um, in your author notes, uh, you said that you first thought of writing a story about the Vietnam War in 97. So talk about why you felt you were finally ready to write this story now and the overall premise of this amazing novel. Well, this is a story about um, the nurses who served in Vietnam, uh, what they what they dealt with. Um, in service in the war and how it was like to come home to a very changed and um, and politically divisive America. So that, that sort of is the book in a nutshell. And, you know, yes, I, I first pitched this idea to my editor in 1997. And the reason is, I think that I was a child, you know, during the Vietnam War. And so it cast a big shadow over my life. You know, there were three news uh, stations back then. So we were we were all really watching the war and watching what was going on and listening to Walter Cronkite. And my best girlfriend, um, her father served and he was shot down and was missing. And so back then we wore these prisoner of war bracelets, little silver bracelets that had the servicemen's name and date that they were um, missing on it. And so for years, I, you know, his name was like in front of me all the time. And so, so I really wanted to write about this time period, uh, but I never quite nailed exactly what the story was. And it was actually in March of 2020 uh, during the pandemic when we were locked down in Seattle that I, you know, I was watching the news and it it felt so much like the Vietnam era. We were so politically divided and there was so much anger 
and and political divisiveness. And so that was the first piece of the puzzle. And then I was, you know, watching our nurses and doctors and medical personnel who were on the front line of this um, of this pandemic and watching how much they were sacrificing for all of us. And I think that's when the novel really came together. And I thought, okay, it's time. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I was wondering about the bracelet. I know you mentioned that in your notes as well, um, about the POW bracelet. Uh, so talk to us about your research. You're known for your meticulous research, and this book is no exception. Um, what are some of the most surprising things you learned when researching both the war and the nurses' experiences in particular? I'd love to hear about that. Well, obviously, the the research in this book was really daunting. It's not the, the first time I've done daunting research. Certainly, um, uh, the Nightingale was a terrifying, you know, uh, research uh, dilemma when I started that one. But this one I knew would be even more difficult in a way because my so many of my readers were alive during this period. And so I knew that, you know, if I made if I made critical or important mistakes, um, not only would I be outed, um, but it would diminish sort of the importance of the book. So it was frightening. And I was lucky that there was so much, you know, information available out there. And like with many of my books, the most important thing I find over the course of the research are memoirs. And in this case, there were four or five memoirs from nurses who served in Vietnam and came home. And they are listed in the back of the book. I, I you know, each each and every one of them I recommend um, really strongly. But one of them in particular was a book called Healing Wounds um, by Diane Carlson Evans. And she really became kind of my, you know, godmother. Uh, throughout this process, she was really my my gateway into these remarkable, remarkable women. And um, for people who are on my Instagram page and, and Facebook, they know that I guess last November I went to D.C. for Veterans Day with Diane and the nurses. And so to see, you know, a hundred um female vets standing at their own memorial. It was one of the most powerful and and really uh, heart expanding experiences of my life. Oh, I can't I can't imagine um, because I know there's some I'm not giving away no, any spoilers, but there are a couple moments like that in the book and it, they just oh, so moving, so moving. Um, so you mentioned that the Vietnam War, War is more recent history. Um, and you, in your author's notes, you also mentioned that you interviewed several men and women who served and that they helped you shape the narrative, shape the story. And I was just curious, the main character is Frankie. It's, it's basically from her perspective and her experiences and her best friends were Ethel and Barb over, who, in Vietnam with her and kind of showed her the way and, and lifted her up. And so were any of the women that you interviewed, were, were um, Frankie, Ethel and Barb based on any of those women? You know, they were not, they're, they're all entirely um, fictional uh, characters, but they're very much based on the facts and, uh, and the memoirs that, that these women presented. And uh, several of the nurses, or I would say probably most of the nurses that went over there were like Frankie. They were young, 
they were fairly inexperienced nurses, you know, fresh out of college or nursing diploma programs. Many of them came from really good families and who, of, who were very proud of their World War II service. And, and, and many of them went over out of a real sense of patriotism, this, this idea that, um, you know, they wanted to help their country. This is the generation that, and I think it's in the book, that really took to heart, you know, John F. Kennedy's ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And so I wanted to show that Frankie was very like, you know, so many of the women who went over there and they, you know, sort of went over with um, kind of a shiny idealism and a naivete and then came home to a country that you know, didn't give them a ticker tape parade, didn't welcome them back as as heroes and, you know, quite the opposite, um, sort of expected them to just disappear into the landscape because, you know, Vietnam was a subject that people didn't want to talk about. Yeah, and that was, I mean, you know, I remember as a kid, like seeing the commercials of these Vietnam vets in wheelchairs and and talking about how they were received when they get home got home and how depressed they were um i don't i don't remember ever seeing any women uh, you know any vietnam women and and so I, when i was reading the book and i was reading your notes um i was it was really interesting to them one of this these quotes from your author's notes is that when the vietnam vets who are women the nurses as well as um red cross civilian women who were served overseas i think you said it was over 10,000 women it's kind of hard to get an, an exact yeah. number right um which is not as you know certainly not as many as the men by far but still um you said that many of the them many of these women keenly remember being told often that there were no women in vietnam and i was I feel like maybe I shouldn't be shocked by that, but I was completely stunned by that. Were you surprised? Oh, I was I was absolutely stunned. And I kept thinking to myself as I would come across this in research, I would think to myself, how is that even possible? I mean, yeah. we watched MASH and and basically we all know, I think, if if you have any kind of historical awareness at all, that there have been women and nurses serving in, you know, war situations forever. So, you know, how they kept thinking that there were no women in Vietnam, I I don't know, except for, I guess, the fact that, you know, they were in hospitals, a lot of them, and in pockets. And, and then again, you know, in terms of the Vietnam vets in general, all of them were sort of, um, you know, treated badly when they came home. And so there wasn't anything set in place to care for the men or the women, but the women were sort of even a further level of invisibility because nobody even knew that they were there, even though they should have. Right, right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and again, this is not giving away spoilers, but you talk about Frankie going to the VA to get support and help when she was having a tough time. And like, they turned her away. Like that was so heartbreaking to me that that, and that yeah. must have happened, right? Like just. Yeah, it's absolutely. I mean, like I said, you, you can't believe it's true. And I had to confirm this with several nurses because yeah. I just kept thinking, how can that possibly be true? Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, 
You know, and you mentioned in the beginning of you know when we started talking how politically polarized the U.S. was during and and right after the Vietnam War, and you can't when you're reading the book you can't help you know think about the parallels in today's political climate. And so, in addition to being moved by the story and entertained by the story, like what do you think people can learn from reading about the politics and the craziness of the Vietnam War era? Well. You know, it's one of those things where kind of like the way I felt after um, the four wins, it is, I think, somewhat comforting to look back and see that we have gone through these really, you know, sort of difficult, divisive, polarizing times and have found our way back to you know, the America that we all want, which is, you know, the idea of us being stronger together than us being, you know, sort of factions that are are tearing each other apart. And so I do sort of take comfort from that. But I also wish that we learned more from history more often, because we do tend to keep repeating it. The one thing about this book that I will say is I can't imagine ever a world in which we would treat veterans coming home from war like this again. I mean, I think that is definitely a lesson that has been learned. I completely agree. I think I I, I can't imagine that either. And I think it's because of the way the Vietnam vets were treated when they returned. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I follow you on Facebook and um, your writing always feels very cinematic to me. Um, and I know that Warner Brothers bought the rights for the women before it, you know, even was published. So huge congratulations on that. Um, I had already planned on asking this question and then I saw that you asked it on Facebook. Um, but who, so who do you, who would you love to see play Frankie and Ethel and Barb? Like you, there were some great, um, great uh, suggestions on your Facebook page. I, I am rooting for like Carrie Mulligan. I think she's great. Oh. And Julia Garner. I think she's also excellent. So that's my Those are great, <laughs> great choices. Um, I would say that, you know, I don't really think about that uh, quite so much, but I can say that what my readers seem to be telling me is that the the front runners or the people that they think, you know, most like them are, um, I hear Florence Pugh. Oh. And Emma Stone and Jennifer Lawrence. I, I hear those oh. three a lot for Frankie. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, everyone seems to be saying, is his name Glenn Powell? Yeah. His name. I saw that. Perfect. Everybody's picking him for Jamie. Yeah. Um, and Sign I. Him up. <laughs> what? Sign him up. I love yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it's just fun and I'm I'm really excited at the opportunity just to see you know this strong a piece of women's and American history you know on the screen at the same time yes it's so exciting uh, another mention on your page was on um, for Barb was um, Zendaya and I was like oh, oh that would be awesome yeah everybody's saying that yes yeah. I that a lot too that's a good one um I have to ask because I know we have a lot of Nightingale fans, a lot of huge fans. I'm going to send you these comments afterwards because they're all so wonderful. I'll make sure you're public <laughs> to get them. Um, but um, what is the latest developments um, with the production of the movie version of the Nightingale? 
Yes, of course. I hear this a lot. I think about this a lot, too. So it's not just my readers. It's me, too. Um, well, you know, the the easy answer is that that Nightingale was about a week from starting to film uh, with Ellen and Dakota Fanning in in March of 2020. And so we were shut down like everybody else. And and then they waited two years and, you know, started thinking that they could, um, you know, gear back up and they were just about to gear back up and the writers went on strike and then the actors went on strike. And so it's only been really in the last probably four or five months that we can um, start getting, you know, back into that. And so all I can say is I'm an eternal optimist, but we have a beautiful script. We have a great director. And I truly believe that 2024 is the Nightingale's year. Oh, that's excellent news. Now, did you have, um, did you participate in the screen in writing the screenplay or did you leave that to someone else completely? I did not. I, I wouldn't say I didn't participate because I did read um some versions various versions of it and i did give input but i did not actually write it you know i think that it's really important to for readers and for writers you know to understand that these are two different art forms and when they bring nightingale to the the screen or if they bring the women to the screen it's never going to be the fullness of the book I mean, I don't care how many episodes you have. And so it's always going to be kind of a version um, of the book. And so what you're really hoping for, I think, is really smart people who understand what the point of the book is and are trying to make the best film version of that possible. Definitely, definitely. Well, it's so exciting that I can't wait for both of them. Um, I have a few few writing related questions now that I ask all authors that come on and then um, I'll remind everyone to put their questions for Kristen in the chat or in the Q&A and I will do my best to get through as many as I can without keeping her here all night. So, um, so how do you strike a balance between fact and fiction in your storytelling and is there any, are there any strict rules that you adhere to overall? Um, well, I mean, the hope is that I, you know, never make an error and never bend um, the historical record to fit my narrative in a way that is problematic or offensive or disrespectful. You know, that's definitely the overarching thing. When I was younger, I was very, very sort of keenly tied to what actually happened and when. And I find that as I've gotten older and as I've written more books, I'm a lot more interested in truth than fact. And what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes something isn't quite exactly accurate, but it feels like the truth of the time. And that's really what I'm looking for. If I if I actually change things, which I did a little bit in The Four Winds, I will usually um, tell people in, in the author's notes so they know. Got it. Okay. That's excellent. Excellent advice. Um, that's something I still struggle with. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so this is a sweeping historical story. 
And I'm really curious about your writing process. I always ask authors, are you a plotter? Are you a pantser? Are you somewhere in between? Do you use Scribner? That's the other question I'm always curious about you. I, I do not even know what Scribner is. I, oh, write, no. longhand. <laughs> I write longhand on yellow legal pads. Do you really? Yeah. Amazing. I mean, at some point it gets entered into the computer, obviously. And I do um, usually from about, I don't know, maybe draft six on or something might be on the computer. But the the bulk of the writing and any new scene being written is is always yellow legal pads. Um, and my process, I you know, I've gone through in the 35 years that I've been doing this, I've gone through a lot of different processes as my books have changed. You know, I started in historical romance and then I I went to, I guess what they were calling at the time, contemporary women's fiction. And then I went to what I consider to be just, you know, general fiction and then historical fiction. And each of those um, sort of iterations of my of my life has had its own process. So in the first, when I was doing romances and I was a young stay-at-home mom, I outlined everything and I wrote exactly what I intended to write. And then when I, you know, when I started writing school hours, school days and the the early women's fiction, I still did a lot of outlining and then I wrote what I what I intended to write with a little bit of play. And it really started with about Firefly Lane, I think, when I started writing what I consider to be, you know, general fiction. That's when my outlining process stopped being as valuable as the finding my way and and following what was working. That's what I, what I started doing then. So what I would do is all the research, do the outline, a really detailed synopsis, and then I would sit down and accidentally write a different book. And that's just simply the way I do it. And it's a horrible, depressing process. And what I do is I, I, I follow, like I said, I follow what is working, not what I wanted to work or what I thought would work. That's so interesting because I feel like a lot of times authors start with like not doing an outline at all and then like go to the outline as they progress in their career and that, that's like just the opposite but you but you I mean you've been doing this a really long time now you just trust your instincts so you know yeah. every time I complain to my girlfriend about it she's like look it's working just go with it <laughs> and so that's what I tell myself it's not a great process but it's working Exactly. I, uh, this is a question just for my own personal. Does it ever get easier? Because it's still ah. really fun. <laughs> you know, it is. Here's what's interesting. What gets easier is writing sentences. You know, I stop being, you know, I just write. I just sit down and I write and I write my stories. And so the writing part of it for the first draft is actually easier the the corollary to that is the books are getting harder i'm asking more of myself and so the creation of the novels is harder and and i'm like everyone else by the way when i finish one book and i go to start another i have that moment where i think maybe i don't have it anymore maybe that was the last one and i've just been really lucky because and the, and the way you combat that, of course, as a novelist is 
the same thing that you do at book one. You sit down and you write, and then you write the next day and the next day and the next day, and you trust in the process and the journey. That is that is encouraging because I feel like I'm on book five and like, how do I even do this again? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Starting from scratch. Um, So speaking of um, authors, aspiring authors, I know we have aspiring authors in the audience. What's the best advice you can give them about writing and getting published? Well, those are two different things. Um, So my best advice for writing Uh, It's what I say to my son, who is um, an aspiring novelist. It's what I say to everyone. If you dream of something, writing or otherwise, the the key decision, the key moment is beginning, is making the decision to begin, to sit down and and start writing. And then of course you have to remake that decision every single day you know you have to continue to sit down you have to continue to write to learn to study and understand that the only way you really fail in writing is if you stop is if you give up or quit Um, because i'm a believer that if you are writing novels and you know, you're you're finishing them, you're you're doing it, and you're not selling or you haven't yet sold. The truth is that the writing itself is cathartic and it's important and it's good for your life, it's good for your soul. So I'm a big believer in start writing, keep writing, don't quit, and of course, read, read, read. Um, are you ready to share what you're working on now or next? <laughs> I, I know it's like, what did it come out three weeks ago? So I'm, like, <laughs> I'm not working on anything, Jane. Uh, Nothing. Good. For you. <laughs> good. <laughs> I, I wish I were, believe me. Um, what is the best way um, readers can find out what's happening with you? And then I'll take some questions from the audience. But um, I know people always love to know, like, is it, do you prefer newsletter, Facebook? Like, what's your favorite? Medium. I mean, honestly, the I'm not a great, you know, I'm not technological superstar or anything. I really like Instagram. And that is sort of the place, Instagram and my Instagram stories are where I'm sort of the most um, kind of relaxed and interactional. So that's where you're most likely to get anything. I mean, I do have a website um i'm not on twitter i'm not on threads or any of that but instagram facebook and my website excellent um okay i'm ready to take some questions and um everyone i will do my best there's like hundreds (laughs) and hundreds of questions and comments um i'll start with sharon person who i don't think has ever missed a historical happy hour in three years sharon you're the best um now that you're on book tour have you met anyone with a story about being in vietnam that surprised Mm -hmm. you or something that you didn't find in your research? That's a great question. You know, it this going on book tour with this book has been unlike any any tour I've ever done before. And if you guys are on my Instagram page, you've seen these pictures of, you know, people showing up to hear about that. But what you don't see so much is almost at every tour stop, they have, you know, a Q&A section. And I believe every single event, female Vietnam vets came up to the microphone 
and had something to say. I mean, at my first event in Seattle, um, a woman came up to the podium, I mean, Seattle in uh, Los Angeles, a woman came up who I had met when I was in DC. And, you know, she said, hi, Kristen, I just wanted to say hello. I'm here with my nurse friends. And she pointed up into the balcony and her the other four nurses she was with stood up and the room like uh, I don't wow. know, 1700 people gave them a, a spontaneous standing ovation and i mean i don't think there was a dry eye in the house it was so powerful yeah and I, just, I just saw you know that sort of thing over and over and and over and it just tells me that you know Vietnam vets in general and their children and their families, they have lived in silence for a very, very long time. And I think it's so great to open the dialogue and 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 see them. I agree. So powerful. I, I meant to um, I did some events at the Red Cross um, a few years ago and um, there was a Red Cross clubmobile girl. On one, of, it was during Zoom oh. pandemic, and um, she had been in Vietnam. And I wish oh. I meant to look up her name before this because her her stories were incredible. And I'm sure you'll probably you know meet her along the way on these tours because she just had some incredible stories and was such an inspirational oh. person. Yeah, these, these women are amazing. I mean, uh, just stunningly, I mean, you think about, and if once you read the women, you know, one of the things that was important to me, and and it's a tough segment when she's in Vietnam, I don't shy back from what it was like. And the reason is because, you know, one of the things the nurses heard when they came home in terms of not getting help for their kind of, you know, emotional trauma was, well, you weren't in combat. And it was so important for me to say, look, this this is combat in my book. And, you know, we need to we need to help all of our veterans when they come home from any war. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, speaking of the title, um, do you have a say in, in choosing the title? Did you ever consider another title? Was it always called The Women? It we considered a million other titles. We really did. Um I'm not very good at titles in general. And um, and this one, we just we just could not uh, come up with it. I mean, I had pitched the women early on, but what everyone said, and it made sense to me in a vacuum, like what women, what does this even say? And, you know, what, how does it tell anybody what the book is about? And so I kept saying, well, that's the cover's job. You know, I think this is really the right title because this book is about the women. And it was my brilliant editor who came up with the missing, the forgotten, the brave. And then the women made sense and we ran with it. And the cover is beautiful um, and also feels cinematic. Did you do you have much say in that? And uh, I do as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's one of those things. And and for the aspiring um, authors and for new novelists, you know, I put in my 15 years where I didn't have any, um, you know, any input. And I do think it's important uh, for writers to to really push or lean in to their own publication and to fight for, 
you know, the title that you want and the cover, the best cover that you can get, you know, given the circumstances, because title and cover, you know, in a, is a huge part of what makes a book, you know, fail or succeed. Huge. Yes, I completely agree. Um, another great question um, from Sarah Vogel. What has been your favorite book that you've written and why? Do you have a favorite? Well, it sounds so self-serving, but it really is the women. And I think it's because this is the first time that it feels like every single thing I wanted to get on the page, I got on the page. Um, and I'm just so happy to be part of shining a light on these women and their forgotten service. So so that's the truth. Um, but But to, you know, to be a fairer answer... I will go with uh, The Nightingale, Winter Garden, and Firefly Lane. Another, um, this is another great question from Cassandra Powers. Do you know the ending of your novel? I know you just explained your process. Do you have a rough idea of the, of the ending when you're working the way that you work in terms of your process, or you just kind of feel your way along towards the ending? I always know the final scene when I sit down to write. And of all the things that change, which are many, uh, that ending scene tends more often than not to stay. Because what it, what that is, of course, that's the culmination. That's the moment where whatever my protagonist could not do or did not get at the start of the novel, this is the moment where you know where she finds her voice and comes into her own. So I, I usually know what that is. More questions coming in. Um, oh, what are you reading right now? That's a question that's come up a couple times. What are ah. you reading yourself? So I just read Chris Whitaker's All the Colors of the Dark, um, which I loved. I love him. Yeah. He's oh, a good. Great, he's great. Yeah. I first discovered him, I think, with my last book. They sent me his ARC. Um, and I read um, Carmelante's uh, Cold Victory, which I really enjoyed. I am sitting down next to read Tammy Hogue's Bad Liar. Excellent. I am reading Finding Margaret Fuller um, by Allison Pataki because she's coming on next month. So um, I've just started that. I'm really excited. I want to give a plug for, for Allison. Um, other questions here. Oh, is there, a, a, there was a question I missed about um, The Great Alone. Is there any movie in the works for that? Um... No, uh, the answer is a solid maybe. <laughs> um, uh, we're interested in it, and I think it lends itself to a limited series, and we're kind of working on that. Um, so I'm hopeful. Yeah. I just actually watched, um, uh, what was the true detective? Um, Night Country, which had kind of a similar vibe, and, and I really loved it. That's oh, just yeah, I'm on the last episode. That was, I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so good. <laughs> Anything with Jodie Foster, anyway, I mean, please, yeah. <laughs> How long does it take to research your books? This question is from Jennifer Bailey. That's a great question. The answer is, the easy answer is a year is usually dedicated to researching and choosing an idea. Uh, for me, the hardest part is choosing an idea, which is why I laugh when you say, what are you working on? Because I need an idea desperately right now, and I don't have one. And so I'm kind of eating up time looking for something that I care about as much as I 
you know, cared about when I started the women. Someone asked, are you going to come to the Boston area? I'm outside of Boston. So I selfishly have to ask this question, Laura Cushing, will you come to Boston on your book tour? I know you've listed a ton, like you're super busy, which I'm so yeah. appreciative of you coming tonight. So um, I, I'm not going to, Bo I, yeah, I was in Boston on my last book tour. Um, I was with the, Lisa Gardner. We had an absolute blast uh, talking about stuff. So maybe, you know, probably not Boston in the near future. I do love Nashville, by the way. Someone just said that. I do love Nashville. One final question. Was there, because I love this too, because I think with research, um, you know, sometimes you, there's so much of it that you want to include, but you don't. And Marilee Mar asks, was there any research you wanted to include, but just couldn't find a way to justify it and put it in the story? You know, I can't think of something like that for the women, but there was something in The Four Winds, which was my last book, and that was set during the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. And there was a story um, about a woman named Sonora Bab that I came across who had um, who had worked in the migrant camps in California to help people come in. And and she took notes about everything about them, right? Um, and found out everything and helped them, you know, acclimate. Well, while she was writing her great American novel about the Dust Bowl and the migration, and unbeknownst to her, she's giving all of these notes for her novel, she's giving them to her boss so that he can keep records. And unbeknownst to her, he is giving those notes to John Steinbeck while he is writing The Grapes of Wrath. And so she writes her novel and she sells it to the great Bennett Cerf, the editor at Random House. And they think it's going to be, you know, revolutionary. And then The Grapes of Wrath comes out and she is not able to publish her novel for 20 years. So That's brutal. Oh, <laughs> Isn't that brutal? brutal? That is brutal. I oh, uh, that yeah. I can see why you would want to get that in. Um, so I don't want to take up any more of your time. This was amazing. It's such an honor to meet and talk with you. I, you're such an inspiration. I will send you all these comments because some of them are oh, amazing. About I would love to. Thank you so so much. This was wonderful. And I know I see several names coming past from my Instagram feed that I know. So hello to all of you, and yes. and thanks for visiting. It's nice to to kind of almost see you. Yes, so awesome. Thank you, Kristen. Um, best of luck and huge congratulations. Thank you for, so much. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Have a nice uh, night. You too. Take care. Bye-bye.